Turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, the book of Titus chapter 3. We're going to continue on with the book of Titus. Last Wednesday night, we looked at Titus chapter 1, and then on Sunday, we looked at Titus chapter 2, so we're going to finish up that book tonight, Lord willing. (laughs) You guys are saying the same thing, I'm sure. Uh, After that marathon of a chapter 1 we had last Wednesday night. Titus chapter 1, let's pray before we start our study. Father, we, as always, come before you with humble hearts, desiring to hear from you and to learn from you, from your word. And so it's our prayer that tonight, uh, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, that the things that we uh, glean from your word, Father, that you would impress them upon us, that we'd meditate on these things, just knowing and seeing the importance of, of studying your word and the value that we have in that. So, Lord, be with us now. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray that you just speak to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So after a shipwreck, a man was marooned on on an island, a very small island, obviously in the middle of nowhere. So he was there for almost 20 years. And one day he, on the horizon, sees a ship passing by. And so he quickly builds a fire so that he can signal the ship. The captain of the ship notices the smoke rising up uh, from the fire, and he goes to investigate on this island. And upon arriving at the island, he, he finds this castaway and learns that he'd been on this island for the past 20 years. So the castaway, before they take off, decides to give him a quick, quick tour of the island. It's a small island, and just kind of give him an idea of what kind of surroundings he was having to live in over that 20-year period. So he shows them the home that he built with his own hands, and he he shows them this water tower that he constructed. And he shares with them that, that his faith in God was the only thing that kept him going for all those years. And in that, he showed them the little church that he had built there on the island. Well, upon leaving the island, the captain noticed another small building, and he, he was like, hey, we, you know, I see this, it's run down, and it uh, doesn't look like it's been used for years, but what, what was that building for? Which the castaway replied to him, well, that, that was the original church I built, but about eight years ago, we had a church split, so I had to build another one. <laughs> so that goes along with what we were talking about last Wednesday in chapter one, and how in Titus chapter 1, where Paul is encouraging Titus to uh, set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every church. And we see what had happened on that island of Crete is that because heresy had crept into the church, uh, false teachers, uh, that over time false teaching was going on, and there were probably many churches that had broken off because of that. So even on the island of Crete, way back when, we see that there were probably church splits that had taken place. So, as we discussed, uh, Titus chapter 1, just in a quick review, was about leadership in the church. We talked about the importance of that, and Paul exhorting and commanding Titus, again in verse chapter 1, verse 5, we see to set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city. And we studied at length, (laughs) if you were here, the importance of strong leadership in the church and how those leaders need to be committed, uh, be of good character, and be commissioned 
for the purpose of setting in order the things that are lacking. So we studied those three things, the commitment of the leader, the character of the leader, and the commission of the leader. And then carrying on the commission of the leader, we moved into chapter 2 on Sunday. So while chapter 1 focused on leadership in the church, chapter 2, as we discussed on Sunday, focused on discipleship in the church. And then tonight in chapter 3, we're going to focus on relationship in the church. So those three key ingredients we see to a successful church, leadership, discipleship, and relationship. Now all three of these, those three things, are critical to the life and success of this thing we call church, or this thing that we are church, as we looked at on Sunday. So in chapter 2, we studied that discipleship was a command of God, and that as believers, we should determine whether we need one of two things, to be discipled or to be discipling someone. Once again, we applied some basic principles of discipleship that need to be in place for discipleship to be successful. And it needs to be intentional, relational, and foundational. Intentional in that it's being obedient to God's command of actually discipling others. Relational in that we're investing in others either one-on-one or in a group. And foundational that we're it's a focused course of study focused on sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. And we talked about that, that doctrine is, simply put, the why we do the what we do. The why we do the what we do. Why we do this this way. So sound doctrine then is God's Word directing the why we do the what we do. So we're using God's Word as our foundation to do those things. So we believe we do what we are taught from God's Word. So discipling is intentionally investing in someone, teaching and guiding them essential Christian beliefs to help them grow in their relationship with the Lord and with yourself being an example of those things. So as you're discipling someone, it's not just that you're teaching this or teaching them that or showing them God's truths, but that also you're an example or a model of that which you are teaching. So now, going into chapter 3, we'll look at relationship in the church. We'll see that Paul's going to give an exhortation here to godly living and how it relates to others in and out of the church. So let's read Titus chapter 3, if you follow. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that, having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works, 
these things are good and profitable to men. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. All those who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. So in this letter, Paul writing to Titus once again, and also to the churches on the island of Crete, Paul has laid down this foundation in the first chapter of showing leadership and what leadership is. He has set us up in, in the chapter 2 with what discipleship is all about and how we should be doing that. And he carries on in chapter 3 now, exhorting and encouraging, commanding Titus to do these things and be aware of these things. So relationship in the church. I want us to set a framework tonight of three things to help us better grasp this chapter. So think of it in this way, if you will, that verses 1 and 3, Paul is exhorting us to be mindful. Verses 4 through 7, he's exhorting us to be thankful. And verses 8 through 11, be careful. So in verse 1, Paul says, remind them to be or be mindful of these things. Be mindful. Be mindful to be subject to rulers and authorities. To obey, to be ready for every good work. Hold your place in Titus 3 and flip over to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, the first three verses are going to also uh, reaffirm what we see here and how we are as Christians to view and to be subject to governing authorities. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. It says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Now, every soul would be everyone, right? All of us, no exceptions. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So all authorities that are in place, even as we see it today, have been put in place by God. That's a hard one to grasp sometimes because we don't always agree with those authorities, do we? We don't always uh, follow along the same doctrine that they might be promoting, uh, especially when it comes to politics. However, uh, the scripture is very clear. We might not agree with them, but we are still to be in a place where we are to obey and have respect for that authority. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists Authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authorities? Then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. So, practically, how does that work? How is that worked out? If we don't get, want to get pulled over for speeding, then 
pretty easy, isn't it? Don't speed. Don't go over the speed limit. And I'm, you know, I look at all of you dear souls here this evening. <laughs> I'm quite sure none of us have a problem with that one at all, do we? None of us, no. So <laughs> that's just a very small thing, isn't it? We just think, well, you know, it's 65. I can set the cruise on 68 or 69. I'm good. I even ask. Uh, we used to have a state patrolman from uh, Fort Morgan that used to go to church here. I even asked him one time. I said, so Jim, um, how, how much over the speed limit can you go and not get in trouble? And he gave me a classic answer. Why do you ask? <laughs> okay, I see. So anyway... Back to Titus, it tells us to be subject to rulers and authorities. So obey the laws of the land unless, unless they directly contradict God's word. Okay? need to keep that in mind. Unless they directly contradict God's word, we are to obey the laws of the land. To obey. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments in John 14, 15. So obedience is born out of love. If we love the Lord, we will obey. So our love for the Lord should bring about obedience to Him. Then also in verse 1 it says, at the end, to be ready for every good work. So we talked about this in the last two teachings too. Good works. It's mentioned time and time again throughout the book of Titus. Good works. To be ready for every good work. So we need to be in a place where we're preparing ourselves for good works, a discipline that we carry out that prepares us for good works. What would that be? Well, obedience would be one of those things, be obedient to what he's telling us to do. But preparing ourselves for good works through prayer, through the study of God's word. So we should be watching for opportunities for good, good works. We should be praying, Lord, give me discernment that I might recognize the opportunity to do a good work. And then respond to those opportunities. Basically, see a need and meet it. So he goes on to say then in verse 2, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. To speak evil of no one. We see back in Exodus chapter 22 where it says, God commanding, you you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So we... Look at the terms again that we looked at in the first verse. Then we shall not speak evil of a governing authority. Now just quickly by a show of hands, how many of us are guilty of speaking evil of a governing authority? I think we're all there, are we not? <laughs> it's so easy sometimes. <laughs> they, just, they just set us up for that, don't they? Just by things that they say and do or don't do, whatever the case may be. But Paul is also broadening here to say, speak evil of no one. Not just those in authority, but speak evil of no one. He also says to be peaceable. So avoid quarreling. It it always takes two to generate any kind of a dispute, right? Uh, Although I have found times when I argue with myself. I always win. It's, It's interesting. It also says to be gentle. Gentle. What do we think of when we think, gentle what what animal would we think of as as a gentle animal not marcy's dogs those are excluded a gentle animal would be sheep right we think of sheep being 
Have you ever known a sheep to attack anybody? I, I, don't, I don't recall that ever happening. I don't know, maybe, but a goat would, but I don't, I don't know that a sheep would. So Jesus being the Lamb of God, He's the perfect picture of someone that's gentle. So when we think of the word gentle, we, we should think of Christ because He's that, that perfect example. Then He also says in verse 2, showing all humility to all men. So it's not saying show some humility to some people, is it? Just some of the time, show humility to some of the people. It's saying show all humility to all men. Of course, if you look it up in the Greek, the all, it means all. So to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Putting others first in spite of yourself. So now we're going to move into a section that should be very convicting to us. We should not uh, be judgmental towards others when we consider the background that's laid out here. Paul is actually writing in this verse a background that is a good picture of where he was, what he was like before he came to the Lord. And I think if we were all honest with ourselves, uh, we could say, been there, done that. So again... We're being mindful of these things. So we're being mindful of these things that Paul is exhorting us to do. Now we need to be mindful of the things of which we were, or which we used to be like. In verse 3, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Again, I think we would all fall in one of, not all of those categories before we came to know the Lord. So we were foolish. We were unable to comprehend any spiritual truths. We were lacking wisdom because we had no relationship with God. We were disobedient to God and to others. We were deceived, always missing the right way because of Satan drawing us away from the right way. Serving various lusts and pleasures. Selfish satisfaction. I had to practice that one. That's hard. that's hard to say. Selfish satisfaction. Serving various lusts and pleasures. Living in malice and envy. Malice and envy. Unlovable and selfish. Making others miserable. Hating and hating one another. Quarreling. Just a lack of love towards others. So, knowing these things, remembering that we were like this once also, should build at least four things in us should be a gratitude, gratitude for how God has changed us, humility as we see that it was His work that changed us, kindness, kindness to others in the same place that we used to be in, and faith, faith that God can change those who are still in that place because we know that He changed us. So, we looked at being mindful, being mindful of these things. And now we're going to go into a section of Scripture here, verses 4 through 7, where we're going to be thankful. Because of what was done for us, we can look here and be thankful for these things, that we're not those things we saw in verse 3 any longer. Or at least when we are, we know that we have forgiveness of those things. And it says, verses 4 through 7, but when the kindness... And the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly 
through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So that verse starts off, after we've read all these things that we need to be mindful of, that verse starts off with two little words that mean a lot. But when. But when. Two important words that indicate that a change has happened, that a course of the things that were to be has now been altered because the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, appeared when Christ came into the world and what He was sent here to the earth to do. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul wrote that. Paul is basically saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the chiefest of sinners. Well, we looked at Paul uh, early on in our study in chapter 1, kind of his background, you know, he killed Christians. It's like, man, you can't get any worse than that, can you? So he's, he came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chiefest of sinners, Paul is saying. But the kindness and love of God our Savior toward Paul appeared, toward any one of us sitting in here tonight appeared. And then it says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. So two points for us to keep in mind with that. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Good works do not earn salvation. They are the results of salvation. Because of what Jesus has done for us, this is what we should do for him. It's pretty straightforward. But according to his mercy, he saved us. According to his mercy, he saved us. Here's a story of a a wealthy English family who once invited friends to spend some time at their beautiful estate. So the happy gathering was almost plunged into a terrible tragedy on the first day. When the children went swimming, one of them got into deep water and was drowning. Fortunately, the gardener heard the others screaming and plunged into the pool to rescue the helpless victim, this child. That child, that youngster, was none other than Winston Churchill. His parents, deeply grateful to the gardener, asked what they could do to reward him. He hesitated and then said, Well, I wish my son could go to college someday and become a doctor. The parents of Winston Churchill said, We'll pay his way. So years later, when Sir Winston was Prime Minister of England, he was stricken with pneumonia. And greatly concerned, the king summoned the best physician who could be found to the bedside of the ailing leader. That doctor was Sir Alexander Fleming, the developer of penicillin. He was also the son of that gardener who had saved Winston Churchill from drowning as a boy. Later, Churchill said, Rarely rarely has one man owned his life twice to the same person. We owe our lives many more times than that to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So according to His mercy, He saved us. Salvation is a work of mercy, not justice. Justice demands that the deserved punishment must be administered. Mercy provides a righteous way by which the punishment is averted. So we are guilty. We're guilty, so the punishment should come, but because of the mercy, it doesn't. 
Reading on, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Washing of regeneration. It's not a bodily cleansing by water. Baptism doesn't do that. Baptism, we know, is symbolic of being buried with Christ and raised again with Him, right? And we're obedient in baptism. So washing of regeneration is a moral cleansing from the Word of God. In John 15, 3, Jesus said, You are already clean because of the Word which I have spoken to you. So it's the Word of God that cleanses us. And then we read on about the renewing of the Holy Spirit, the transformation that takes place. I saw this little quote and I thought it was, it's a good picture for us of what happens when the Holy Spirit comes into our life and transforms us. It says, Not putting new clothes on the old man, but putting the new man in clothes. <laughs> clothes of righteousness, right? So the Holy Spirit is the agent used in regeneration and the Word of God is the instrument that's used. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit is the agent that is used in regeneration and the Word of God is the instrument that is used. We need to be thankful for these things. Verse 6 says, Whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit from the moment that he is born again. And it is the promised Holy Spirit given by our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit in us is our seal of approval. It's our seal of approval that we belong to Him, that we are His. The Holy Spirit in us. We can be thankful for that. And the result of our being His is that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, God reckons us as righteous. That just blows my mind. I don't know about yours. Is that You think about that because of what Christ did for us, because we're trusting in Him, God reckons us as righteous. I like to picture it like there's this filter called Jesus Christ, and as God looks down... He looks through this filter, which is Jesus Christ, which makes us righteous. He doesn't see us as we are because of our relationship with Christ. Having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He reckons us as righteous by an act of amazing grace. We become heirs of all that God has prepared for those who love Him. Heirs. We become heirs. We're going to inherit So we become His heirs because of the relationship we have with Him. Because of that relationship. Verse 8, This is a faithful saying, and these things I want to affirm constantly. A faithful saying. In other translations it probably says, trustworthy saying. Faithful, trustworthy. Or, listen up to what I'm about to say. Anytime you see that in Scripture, you know, we, we, we see those verses that start off with, therefore... So we always want to look to see what it's there for. Here's one for us as well that says, this is a faithful saying. This is a trustworthy saying. This is the truth that I'm going to tell you. Listen up because this is important. Having been saved from so much, we should live in a manner worthy of our high calling. Having been saved so much, we should live in a manner worthy worthy of our high calling 
that is our high calling that we have in Christ Jesus. He says, I want to affirm constantly what I have said up to this point, what I am saying or what I'm about to say now is very, very important. It's a trustworthy saying. And I want you to affirm it constantly. That those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. Those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. Titus, you leaders in the church, all that know Christ, insist on the things that are discussed in verses 1 through 7. Those things that he've already laid out for us, we need to be careful that we maintain those things that he uh, has given us there so that the believers in Crete would be careful to maintain good works. So this is the charge not only to Titus, not only to the leaders, the leaders that would be appointed, but everyone. We've talked about that. All those things in chapter 1 that it lays down for qualifications for an elder... Yes, they must have those qualifications, but it applies to all of us. You can't find anything in that list that doesn't apply to all of us. As we went in chapter 2, all the things that he exhorted us to do in discipleship apply to all of us. So he's saying those who have believed. That says it right there, doesn't it? If we have believed, then these things apply to us. And we should be careful to maintain good works. So we looked at be mindful of those things that we saw in the first three verses. Be thankful for the things that we saw in the next four verses. And now, Paul is saying, be careful, be careful. As you are a believer, as you are mine, be careful to maintain good works. Good works. Then it says, these things are good and profitable to men. That's pretty simple. Good works are good and profitable to men. That is, teaching what calls for behavior that is good and profitable, behavior that is beneficial and is of value to not only yourself, but to others as well. Then he says in verse 9, again, be careful and avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, strivings about the law. So foolish disputes... We've all been in one of those at one time or another. Uh, just last year, arguing, okay, who's the better quarterback? Orton or Tebow? It's just a foolish dispute, isn't it? You just go back and forth. We all know Tebow is. So anyway, <laughs> foolish disputes. Then, at this time, when Paul's writing this letter, it might have been things like clean and unclean foods, Sabbath reg- regulations, and those kind of things. Today it could just be theological nitpicking and uh, arguing over uh, pur- you know, purposeless doctrine, uh, things like did Adam have a navel and those kind of things. What's, what's the purpose of those arguments and those things, right? They're just foolish, foolish disputes. Then also genealogies. Back then, but we are of Abraham or we are of Moses. Today, I mean, there's still people today that, you know, they think... Uh, <laughs> You might have someone that's blonde hair, blue eyes, and they say, I'm of Jewish descent. <laughs> okay, yeah, maybe somehow on down the line. That may be true. But also it could bring up things like uh, genealogy in the church, being part of a certain denomination. Well, I've been Baptist. My parents were Baptist. My grandparents were Baptist. They were Presbyterian. You know, whatever. 
Speaking of Presbyterian, I got another thing I want to share with you. This was a, in 2008, this was in a paper in Georgia, uh, from Centerville, Georgia. And the, the uh, title of the, uh, this report was, you get this, 47 church splits finally brings doctrinal perfection. So after 47 church splits, now we have doctrinal perfection. And it says the small community of Centerville has a population of just over 5,000 people. But with a total of 48 now Presbyterian churches, they also hold the record for the most number of Presbyterian churches in a small town. What an honor. Oh. The high number of churches has to do with multiple splits that have taken place over the years because of one issue or another. So originally in 1899, only one Presbyterian church existed, simply known as Centerville Presbyterian Church. With about 20 families, the church was at that time the largest church in the Centerville area. Now by 1911, the church had grown to almost 150 members, a considerably large church at that time. But a dispute had arisen within the congregation over whether or not the offering should be taken before or after the sermon. Thus, the first split took place. With the dissenting congregation forming Centerville Reformed Presbyterian Church, CRPC as it's known. In 1915, a dispute arose amongst the members of Centerville Reformed Presbyterian Church over the issue of the regulative principle of worship. It seems that some members of CRPC liked the idea of having flowers in the sanctuary while others objected. As a result, CRPC split and Trinity Reformed Presbyterian Church of Centerville was organized with 25 members, the TRPCC. Several more splits took place over various issues between the years of 1915 and 1929. And it was in 1931 that another dispute arose amongst the members of at this time, 7th Presbyterian Reformed Covenantal Church of Centerville over an issue that no one can seem to remember, nor do any records indicate. Suffice it to say that approximately half the congregation split away and nine people formed 3rd Westminster Trinity Covenant Presbyterian Reformed Church of Centerville. Again, more splits took place between 1931 and 1975, when a major split took place with the PCUS denomination over the issue of merging with the more liberal PCUSA. At that time, 11th Westminster Covenant Presbyterian Church of Centerville voted to remain in the PCUS with the merger. Fifteen members broke off and formed St. John's Presbyterian Church. One week later, St. John's Presbyterian Church split over the choice of the name for the church as several members objected to using the word saint in the name of a Reformed church. We're almost done. Since 1975, several more splits have happened with the most recent occurring this past weekend, January 2008, when a dispute arose among the members of 2nd Street, 1st 9th, Westminster Covenant Reformed Presbyterian Church, over the issue of the observance of the Lord's Day. The issue in question was whether or not it was acceptable for someone to check their email on the Sabbath. Those who objected have now split off and have formed 
the Presbyterian, totally reformed, covenantal, Westminsterian, Sabbatarian, regulative, credo-communistic, millennial, presuppositional church of Centerville. (laughs) That's a mouthful, isn't it? An elder at that church says, I think we finally got it right now. (laughs) We now have a church with 100% doctrinal purity. The PTRCWSRCCAPCC is hoping to grow and help reach out to the community. He says, we're up to six people on Sundays now. And I know that numbers are not important, but we're hoping to grow just a little more. Sounds ridiculous. It sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But we know, and remember we had a show of hands last Wednesday and on Sunday of all those that had been in a bad church experience at one point or uh, or other in their Christian walk. And I had 100% participation in that. Everybody had been a part of something like that. And we talked about the reasons for that, that you were either, the church was either lacking leadership, it was lacking discipleship, or it was lacking relationship. So let's finish with this thing called relationship. Uh, we talked about foolish disputes and genealogies, contentions, quibbling over words, unimportant things, strivings about the law, Why dwell on these things? Because they are unprofitable and useless. It says at the end of verse 9. For they are unprofitable and useless. So why even even dwell on those things? But they are brought about by those who seek to cause division. So verses 10 and 11. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Obviously in these churches in Centerville, Georgia, there was some division going on there, right? There were people that were being divisive. Reject a divisive man, the first and second admonition. A man who majors on the minors causes division. It'd be like, okay, let's, let's say we're going to buy all new chairs for the church. And we got in a big argument, and there was a split over what color we should get. It's ridiculous. We know they should be maroon, right? So do you... As a divisive person, you may have heard this said before, do you bring happiness wherever you go or whenever you go? (laughs) Knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned, their behavior is not a version of Christianity, but it is a perversion of Christianity. They stubbornly stick to their guns in spite of being warned by godly counsel. Final thoughts. Verse 12, when I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. So Paul was planning to send either Artemis or Tychicus to replace Titus on the island of Crete at some point in time. And it would seem from what we see in in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4 that Tychicus was actually sent to Ephesus rather than Crete, so it was probably Artemis that went to Crete. Also, it appears as though Titus would soon have some visitors here. We see Zenos and Apollos. It says, Zenos, the lawyer, which gives us some proof that there actually are Christian lawyers, I guess. Some proof. 
Zenos uh, and Apollos, and we know of Apollos from other references in Scripture, we see. Verse 14, we once again see Paul encouraging good works among the believers. If we had to summarize what the whole book of Titus is really about, it's about the church and it's about sound doctrine and good works. We need to be always be in prayer for our church, for our church leaders, that that's the focus of what we do. We're focusing on God's word as sound doctrine and we're doing good works, good works. Here we see that those good works are to meet urgent needs and be fruitful. And finally, Paul closes his letter on the theme that dominated his life, the grace of the Lord. 